The Vikings called it the Kraken. The Bible called it Leviathan. But today, we think these fearsome, mysterious sea monsters were giant squids. By the 1870s, the very existence of sea monsters was completely dismissed by scientists. And those scientists were just as dismissive about giant squids being real as the rest of those mythical sea monsters. Simply put, at that time, nobody believed that giant squids were actually real. All that changed the day a little Newfoundland fishing boat was attacked by a real live giant squid. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. It was October 25th, 1873, near Bell Island in Conception Bay, Newfoundland. Fisherman Theophilus Pico and David Squire, who were accompanied by Pico's 12-year-old son Tom, spotted a large, dark spot under the water near the surface by their tiny little boat. Reverend Moses Harvey, who was later credited with bringing the giant squid to the world's attention, described what happened next. Supposing it to be a portion of a wreck, they rowed towards it, and one of them struck at it with his boat hook. Instantly, the seemingly dead mass became animated. It reared above the waves, presenting a most ferocious aspect, and displaying to the horrified fishermen a pair of great eyes, gleaming with rage, and a horny beak with which it struck the gunwale of the boat. The next instant, a long, thin, corpse-like arm shot out from the head with the speed of an arrow and coiled itself around the boat. It was immediately followed by a second arm, much stouter but shorter, and both, in some mysterious way, glued themselves to the boat, which presently began to sink. The terrible monster then disappeared beneath the surface, dragging the men in the boat with it. The terror-stricken fishermen were completely paralyzed and thought their hour had come. The water was pouring into the boat as it sank lower and lower. Quick as lightning, however, the boy Pico, he seized a small tomahawk that fortunately lay at the bottom of the boat, and the brave little fellow dashed forward with two or three quick blows cut off both arms that lay over the edge of the boat, and the huge slimy mass seemed to slide off and disappeared. The story would soon capture imaginations all over the entire world, which would soon turn their astonished attention towards Newfoundland. Because, by then, sea monsters like the giant squid were thought to be nothing but old legends and myths. From the moment that humans first built boats, they worried about what lurked in the dark, deep, cold, and mysterious waters beneath their fragile little ships. The Odyssey is one of the very first pieces of Western literature ever, or at least that still survives today. It was composed as an epic poem some 2,700 years ago by Homer, a blind bard from Ionia in modern-day Turkey. The Odyssey features a sea monster named Scylla, who lives in a cave in the waters off of Italy and ate sailors. She's a grisly monster, I assure you. She has 12 legs all writhing dangling down and six long swaying necks, a hideous head on each, each head barbed with a triple row of fangs, thick set, packed tight, armed to the hilt with black death, 
Scylla's no mortal. She's an immortal devastation. Terrible, savage, wild, no fighting her, no defense. Just flee the creature. That's the only way. Through the ages, we have had lots of tales of sea monsters all through time and across every single culture. Europeans definitely didn't have a monopoly on sea monster stories. The first sea monster story in Newfoundland was probably what Mi'kmaq called Chipichquam. They were described as huge, scaly, dragon-like serpents with long teeth and a single big horn on their heads. Newfoundland seemed to be a popular spot for sea monsters. In the very earliest days of Europeans exploring the island, reports of strange creatures around the island surfaced. In 1583, General Sir Humphrey Gilbert was leading the first ever European colonization effort towards Newfoundland. The expedition's chronicler, Edward Hayes, wrote about what they saw. There passed along between us, sliding upon the water with his whole body, confidently showing himself above water without hiding. He passed along, turning his head to and fro, yawing and gaping wide, with ugly demonstration of long teeth and glaring eyes. What opinion others had thereof, and chiefly the general himself, I forbear to deliver, but he took it for a bad omen. 300 years later though, everyone thought that sea monsters weren't real. The mid-1800s were the Victorian era, an exciting and heady time of scientific progress. Continents from sea to sea were being linked by steel railway lines. The world was being connected by undersea telegraph lines that allowed texts to be sent instantaneously all around the world. And by then, pretty much the whole world had been explored and mapped. There was no place in the modern Victoria era for old sailor stories about sea monsters. For the scientific and rational people of that time, old myths like sea monsters were a thing of the past. It was agreed on by the scientific community that all sea monsters, including so-called giant squid, were not real. But then in 1861, aboard a French warship called the Electon that was sailing near the Canary Islands in the Atlantic, a soldier called out that there was a giant sea monster underneath their ship. The ship's captain, Bouget, instantly decided to attack it. He ordered his sailors to fire harpoons at the monster and try to haul this beast onto their ship. This giant squid managed to escape, but before it did, the French did hack off a bit of a tentacle, bringing it back to Europe to study. And by a bit, I mean a bit relative to a giant squid, this piece of tentacle was actually weighed 14 kilograms, which is a little over 30 pounds. Author Jules Verne definitely read reports of this incident, and it would form the basis of his famous book called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In that novel, which of course is completely a work of fiction, the characters in it do discuss that real event. The most astonishing event, which proves that these gigantic animals undeniably exist, took place a few years ago. In 1861, the crew of the gunboat Alecto spotted a monstrous squid swimming in their waters. Commander Bouguet approached the animal and attacked it with blows from harpoons and blasts from rifles. 
but without much success, because bullets and harpoons crossed its soft flesh as if it were semi-liquid jelly. After several fruitless attempts, the crew managed to slip a noose around the mollusk's body. This noose slid as far as the caudal fins and came to a halt. Then they tried to haul the monster on board, but its weight was so considerable that when they tugged on the rope, the animal parted company with its tail, and deprived of this adornment, it disappeared beneath the waters. What an awful animal, he exclaimed. Despite the electant bringing back a piece of this giant sea creature, by the time they got to Europe, this tentacle was badly decomposed. While Jules Verne believed the story and wrote a book based on it, most people thought that it was all made up, and they paid very little attention to the story of a giant squid. But I mean, can you blame them, really? I mean, let's be honest here. That 1873 story of a giant squid attacking a fishing boat in Newfoundland, which began the episode, also kind of sounds made up. If we're honest, the whole thing sounds a bit ridiculous. But here's the thing. That 12-year-old boy, Tom Pico, came back to shore with a real hard evidence of the attack. He had those two tentacles with him that he had hacked off of the giant squid that had attacked his dad's fishing boat. This evidence, however, was quickly disappearing. When he got to shore, Tom Pico fed the smaller tentacle to his dog. Reverend Moses Harvey wrote that he was later devastated when he heard about that. Oh, how it made my heart ache to think of the loss to science inflicted by ravenous dogs. I called to mind the mischief wrought by Sir Isaac Newton's dog, Diamond, but it seemed nothing to this. He was comparing young Tom Pico feeding the tentacle to his dog with how Diamond the dog knocked over a candle and set fire to 20 years worth of Sir Isaac Newton's notes, working on his theory of gravity. However, the 12-year-old boy still had some evidence. He kept the other tentacle, which was 19 feet long, which he had acquired after his boat was attacked by a giant squid. But what on earth is a 12-year-old boy going to do with a 19-foot-long tentacle from a giant squid? He had an idea that it might be converted into a rope for mooring his boat. Tom Pico consulted the local village priest, asking him what he should do with this 19-foot-long tentacle. The small town priest had no idea what to make of this whole bizarre incident, but he thought he knew of someone who might have a better idea. Clergyman of the village recommended him to bring to me, as I was, in his words, crazy after all kinds of strange beasts and fishes. Another religious leader in Newfoundland, this one based in the capital of St. John's, was Reverend Moses Harvey. He was particularly well known for his inspirational sermons, and people came from far and wide to see him speak every Sunday. But he wasn't just a reverend, though. Back then, lots of scientists took jobs as priests, ministers, and reverends. The job paid decently well, it was a very respectable job, and it left them with a lot of free time to pursue their passion for science. Reverend Moses Harvey, who was originally from Ireland, was definitely highly educated and an extremely prolific writer, publishing an estimated 900 papers during his life. He had a degree from the Royal Academy of Science in Belfast, and another from Montreal's famous McGill University, the most prestigious school in all of Canada. And so off 
went 12-year-old Tom Pico, carrying with him a coiled up 19-foot-long tentacle that he had cut off of a giant squid who had attacked him. He was headed to the capital and the only large city in Newfoundland called St. John's to find Reverend Moses Harvey. The next day, Tom presented himself at my door in St. John's, asking, Would you like to buy the horn of a big squid? He told me the whole story in a few brief words, merely remarking in a casual way, I think I had done for the big squid. How eagerly I closed the bargain might be imagined, Tom went away a happy boy with the reward I gave him. He was not happier than myself, however, for now I was the possessor of one of the rarest curiosities in the animal kingdom. The veritable arm of the hitherto mythical devilfish, about whose existence naturalists had been disputing for centuries. I knew that I held in my hand the key to great mystery, and that a new chapter would soon be added to natural history. After a quick examination of the tentacle, Reverend Moses Harvey made his way to Conception Bay, the site of the giant squid attack. He was, believe it or not, going there to check if Tom's dog had finished eating the other tentacle. I assume he's never seen a dog eat before. When he got there, he was disappointed to find that the dog did in fact eat the whole second squid tentacle. How I mourned the irreparable loss. While he was there, he ran into Tom's dad, Theophilus Pico, along with David Squire. These were the two fishermen who were in the boat when the giant squid attacked. I found the two fishermen but partially recovered from the terror of the scene through which they had passed. They still shuddered as they spoke of it. What most impressed them was the parrot-like beak that suddenly leaped from the middle of his head as if eager to rend them and the large green eyes gleaming with indescribable fury. Reverend Moses Harvey stuck around Conception Bay for several days. He noticed for several days, men were afraid to go out in their boats, dreading to encounter another sea demon, or perhaps apprehensive that the same monster might be waiting around to avenge his lost arms, which he had unceremoniously been derived of by young Tom's rough surgery. The fishermen have a tradition among them about big squids being seen, but the oldest inhabitant had never seen or heard of such a monster in Conception Bay. He was waiting around Conception Bay in the hope that the rest of the squid might wash up on the beach. When Tom said, I think I had done for the big squid, he meant that he thought that he'd mortally wounded the squid. The Reverend was waiting around hoping that it would die from its wounds and then it would wash up on the shore and then he would be the first scientist to ever see an intact giant squid. While he waited, Reverend Moses Harvey studied that 19 foot long tentacle had by now been carried back and forth over a fair amount of Newfoundland. A lengthened study afterwards of these giant calamaries convinced me that this must have been one of the largest specimens. That in fact, the body must have been from 15 feet to 20 feet in length, and the tentacles each 35 to 40 foot. This would give 70 to 80 feet between their tips when extended with a head four feet across. The weight of the whole mass could not have been less than a thousand to twelve hundred pounds. Fact beats fiction any day. The fabulous kraken of the old naturalists has been thrown into the shade by Megalotuthis Harvey. And yes, if you didn't just catch that there, Moses Harvey did in fact name the giant squid's scientific name after himself. As for the kraken he mentioned, that was a Viking reference. The first European visitors to Newfoundland were actually Vikings, 
who had arrived in North America some 500 years before Christopher Columbus ever did. The Vikings told stories about a sea monster called a Kraken. I tried to find an actual original Viking description of a Kraken, but I was surprised to learn that the earliest written description only comes from 1753, long after the end of the time of the Vikings. This was recorded by a Norwegian bishop named Ponto Patiden, who was traveling to remote fishing villages recording old tales and legends and folklore. He wrote, The fishermen row out a few miles and touch bottom at 20 to 30 fathoms, where the sea is known to be 80 to 100 fathoms deep. The kraken is there, and this is an indication that the place is favorable for cod fishing. If the kraken begins to rise, the fishermen must row away or they will perish in the waves. The kraken may thus rise to the surface like an island with fins and other projections rising as high as a ship's mast. After a few moments, it sinks to the bottom again. After a few days, Reverend Moses Harvey went back home to St. John's, disappointed that the rest of the wounded squid did not ever wash ashore. And what became of it? can never be known. Most likely, it retired into the depths of the ocean to die alone. Otherwise would have been attacked and devoured by its fellows. Sympathy among devilfish could hardly be looked for. Reverend Moses Harvey's disappointment, however, was short-lived. Now imagine my delight when, one day in November, some three weeks after, I received the welcome news that a big squid had been captured by some fishermen at Logie Bay, some three miles from St. John's. Despite them being rare and barely seen for centuries upon centuries, for millennia upon millennia, now a second giant squid had appeared around Newfoundland in only a matter of weeks. Reverend Moses Harvey immediately made his way to the scene presumably in an effort to stop locals from feeding the squid to a dog. As it turns out, though, it was a good thing that he had, because he arrived just in the nick of time. Hurrying with all haste to the place, I was barely in time to save the uncanny monster from being cut up and mixed with bog and earth for manure. The men gave me a graphic account of the capture. Four of them were engaged in a boat hauling in a large herring net. They found it unusually heavy as they drew it towards the boat and concluded they had a specially fine haul of herring. As the mass came nearer the surface, however, they were startled at its violent, convulsive movements, which threatened to burst the net or carry it away. When the contents of the net came into view, they were horrified to see a pair of large, cruel eyes glaring at them, and a confused mass of ghastly white arms wiggling in the meshes of the net and struggling to get free. The men were now thoroughly alarmed thought of letting the net go all together, but finally they decided on killing the struggling monster. One of them drew his fish-cutting knife and severed the head. Just like he'd done with Tom Pico, he offered to buy the giant dead squid from the fishermen, much to their surprise. And I speedily completed a bargain with the fishermen, whom I astonished by offering them ten dollars to deliver the beast to my house. They evidently thought me cracked for paying away so much money for a nasty brute which nearly cost them their lives. To allay their curiosity and make them a bit more careful, I hinted that I wanted it as a present for a queen. I'm not sure that convinced the fisherman that he was perfectly sane and stable. As for the giant squid... To my great satisfaction, I found it was perfect. 
with the exception that in the struggle, its head has been severed from its body, and its eyes been destroyed. I knew what I had in my possession was something all the museums in the world did not contain, a perfect specimen of a giant squid. My happiness was complete. Now that he had a giant squid specimen, Reverend Moses Harvey set about steadying it, and then planning how he would inform the rest of the world about his discovery. Despite how these rather enthusiastic, and some may say slightly unhinged sounding quotes made him sound, Reverend Moses Harvey was actually a serious, well-respected, and actually quite famous scientist, whose work was known all over North America and in Europe. Most of what he published was in the dry and excruciatingly boring scientific publications, and they go into detail about the anatomy of the squid. All of the quotes you've heard from Reverend Moses Harvey's in this episode come not from those scientific journals, though, but from a lengthy retrospective he wrote 25 years after the events for The Wide World Magazine, whose target audience was definitely not scientists, but rather adventure-seeking young boys. He definitely didn't write in the same really outgoing style when his audience was prominent scientists. But Reverend Moses Harvey had a big problem. He had to tell all the great scientists that he had in his possession a dead sea monster. And he had to somehow do this without sounding crazy and being ridiculed by his scientific peers. And much in the same way as Louis de Rougemont was ridiculed, labeled a Munchausen by his critics in the newspapers and elsewhere, for describing an octopus not even half the size as this. Louis de Rougemont, from Switzerland, had claimed that his lifeboat had been attacked by a giant octopus after his ship was wrecked in a storm near Australia. His story was roundly mocked by the press. And if you think that we are vicious on social media today in mocking people, just wait till you hear what the Victorians did to humiliate poor Louis de Rougemont. He was invited to give a talk about his experiences being shipwrecked and having his lifeboat attacked by a sea creature in front of a packed, sold-out audience in a big theater. When he took to the stage, the organizers unfurled a banner above him which read, The Greatest Liar on Earth. And then the audience booed him off the stage. Reverend Moses Harvey was worried that the same thing would happen to him if he started talking about giant squids. But he had an idea on how to offer proof. The photograph, like George Washington, could not tell a lie. Had I published the story without the attesting photograph, I have little doubt that I should have been pronounced a Munchausen. Now, this is the second time that he has mentioned worrying about being called a Munchausen. This Munchausen the reverend keeps mentioning basically means an outrageous liar who actually believes his lies to be true. It came from a then exceptionally popular German book by Rudolf Rasp called Baron Munchausen's Marvelous Adventures, which involved the title character telling stories about things like how he rode a cannonball, how he went to the moon, and how he fought a 40-foot crocodile. Oddly enough, the book's author wrote it by simply writing down the lies told to him by an actual real-life minor German nobleman named Baron Munchausen, who he kept running into at parties, and who kept telling him these crazy stories and expecting people to believe that they were real. 
but honestly, haven't we all ran into a Munchausen at parties before? Now, Moses Harvey did not want to be called a Munchausen. So, the Reverend needed a photograph as proof. But how do you even manage to take a picture of a giant squid at a time when cameras involved a lot of chemicals and a bunch of hired work to take a picture? His extremely innovative solution was to drape the whole squid over his bathtub, or as he called it, my sponge bath. But back then, cameras weren't exactly mobile, or even portable at all, so he had to transport the dead giant squid in his bathtub to a photography studio down the streets of St. John's. The head, with attached arms, was carried in my large sponge bath by a couple of men to the photographic rooms. The result, to my great delight, was an admirable photograph showing the arms hanging down with their splendid array of suckers, the two long arms being looped on each end of the pole. The picture presented the picture of a beautifully executed embroidery. You can see this iconic giant squid sponge bath photo for yourself at backyardhistory.ca. Now that he had a photograph though, he had proof. I opened communication with a number of scientific men regarding my discovery. The sensation created in all quarters was immense. The photograph of Newfoundland's giant squid attracted attention from all over the world. The Smithsonian in Washington created a model of that very squid and hung it from the ceiling of its famous museum. Top scientists from all over the most prestigious universities in the continent argued over who should get to study it. Much to his astonishment, museums and aquariums from all over the world, as well as the famous circus showman P.T. Barnum, sent Reverend Moses Harvey orders to buy giant squids of their own. They said spare no expense. They must have thought they were as plentiful as codfish. Reverend Moses Harvey sent his giant squid to Yale University because it was then home to the most prestigious marine biology scientists in the world. Soon after, a third dead squid washed up on the shores of Newfoundland, and the New York Aquarium bought it for hundreds upon hundreds of dollars. But for Moses Harvey though, he was happy that his giant squid was accepted by scientists, and that they finally believed that it was real. 25 years after proving to the whole world that giant squids were real, Reverend Moses Harvey wrote, From being a mythical personage, the creation of an excited imagination, fit only to be the subject for a romance of the sea, my giant now has got a scientific name and an honored place in the pages of natural history and is now highly respected. Reverend Moses Harvey, voiced by Jordan Batstone. Tom Pico, voiced by Jack Green. Edward Hayes, voiced by Josh Green. Reading the quote from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was Monica Smart. Pontopatin, voiced by Kaylin Fraser. That was Backyard History, with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.